The following sermon is brought to you by ThePreachersVault.com, bringing old-time preaching to a new generation. I brought this jacket right here just so you could see it and show you that I put a little matching napkin in there to match my tie, but that's all you're going to do is see it. Um, I told one of my children this morning, I said, I was hot. She said, is it summertime? I said, yes, it is. She went and told her sisters it was summertime. Of course, they got in an argument about that. And uh, I said, it is, because I don't check summertime on a calendar. I check it on a thermostat. And it was hot enough in my house and in my yard this morning, it was summertime. So uh, let's just uh, deal with it however we choose to do so. Go ahead and open your Bibles, if you would, to the book of James. When you get there, go to James chapter 1. I want to read just a couple of scripture here and there as kind of a springboard to lead us into our thoughts and our mindset this morning. James chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, you'll be most familiar with this, as well as all the other texts that we address today. But here the scripture reads, James, the servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, unto the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, grieving. And then he says in verse 2, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations, knowing this, that the trying... Of your faith worketh patience. I think it was on maybe three to four weeks ago we talked about faith from the book of Hebrews, particularly from chapter 11, and we talked about the idea of the description of faith as well as the dynamics of faith as well as the direction of faith. And we use from Hebrews 11, Hebrews 11, 1 and 2, Hebrews 11, 3, as well as Hebrews 11, 6 for that discussion. And today we're going to be going back to the book of Hebrews, but again, kind of just as a springboard. So if you're going to go back to Hebrews chapter 11, I want to notice with you just another little smidgen or piece of that, particularly focusing beginning in verse 17, and you'll be very familiar with this. I make no apologies for it, but that is from the life of Abraham because Hebrews 11 verses 17 through 19 are ultimately a divine commentary of sorts on the actual account, which you can go ahead and kind of be thumbing the find as well, from Genesis chapter 22, verses 1 through 18. But here in Hebrews 11, verse 17, And Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac, that he might receive the promises offered up by his only begotten son, of whom it was said, that in thy seed shall be called according to that which God was able to raise him up, even from the dead, from whence he received him in a figure. And I want you to focus on that phrase or that series of phrases right there. When he, that is Abraham, was tried. Remember James told us, James 1 and verse 3, that the trying of our faith worketh patience. We also can learn from yet another passage, and then we'll be going over the book of Genesis. Go with the book of 1 Peter. In 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 7, we learn about a similar type of trial that we might endure. And there, 1 Peter 1 and verse 7 says, For the trial of your faith being much more precious than that of gold that perisheth, though it is to be tried with fire, that you might be found in the praise and the honor and the glory in the appearing of Jesus Christ. So what is the synopsis, the summary of those things that we put together. Number one, James tells us we will be tried and it will be for the intent of building our endurance. That's the word patience, endurance. 
Hebrews tells us that one, not only the one, but the one major character who was tried was that of Abraham, and the example that is giving is the offering up of his son Isaac, which Hebrews says, in God's eyes, he did. Now, we've read the account, we're about to read the account, and we may think, well, maybe he didn't quite make it there. No, according to Scripture, he did. And then we learn from what Peter is writing right here that the trying of our faith should be to us. And I said should. But the trying of our faith should be to us more precious than that of silver and of gold. Now, I can't speak for you, but I can speak from my heart and my mouth and say it doesn't always seem that way. When my faith is tested, when my faith is tried, when I am tempted, that's another word James used in verse number two, I don't always feel like that ought to be to me more precious than silver and gold. But as we're going to see from Genesis 22, which that's where you can head over to now, from Genesis chapter 22, the very familiar account for Abraham it was. Abraham needed to be tested. Abraham needed to be tried. Abraham, in one sense, needed to be tempted with the offering of his son to see if he was faithful to God, not his son. And that's sometimes, at least, where we fall. Now, I hope that you'll be in Genesis 22. I've shared with you many times I'm dyslexic, so if you'll follow along, you'll see how dyslexic I am. But if you'll follow along, you'll see how good you can read in comparison to me. Because we're going to read the whole text here, beginning in verse number 1, Genesis chapter 22 and verse 1. We'll read down through at least verse 14. And while I do that, I'm going to do two things today. Number one, we're going to take view of the passage itself. That is Genesis chapter 22, 1 through 19 ultimately. And then we're going to talk about several principles we can draw from the passage. That's the end of it there. The passage itself and then the other principles. Now, in the passage itself, beginning reading there in verse 1, And it came to pass that these things that God did, what's the next word? God did tempt. Now be clear here, there's a difference between the temptation or the test or the trial that God offers and that which Satan offers. As a matter of fact, if you want to put in your note or your margin right here, back over into James chapter 1, James 1 verses 1 to 3 tell us about trials and temptations. And then you go on to James 1 chapter, uh, chapter 1 verses 13 through about 16, let us know that God is not trying to tempt us. Contextually, we understand not trying to tempt us so we might sin. If I'm ever tempted, tested, or tried in order that I might sin, there's but one source for that, and that's Satan himself. God tests, tempts, tries us so we may stand. But it says here concerning Abraham, which conclusion is he's trying to get him to stand. And it came to pass he did tempt Abraham and said unto him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. And he said, Now take thy son, thine only son, whom thou lovest, and get thee into the land of Moriah, and offer him there for a burnt offering upon the mountains of which I will tell thee. And Abraham rose up early in the morning, and saddled his donkey, and took to him two men with him, and Isaac his son, and clave the wood for the burnt offering, and rose up, and went in the place which God had told him. Verse 4, And then on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes, and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said unto the young men, Abide ye here with a donkey, and I and the lad will go yonder. Now watch this. You can go ahead and kind of mark this or highlight it if you have such. I will go there yonder and worship, key phrase, 
and come again unto you. Now that tells you something right there about Abraham's faith because what we have in information comes in hindsight from Hebrews 11 verses uh, 17 to 19 and also from being able to read the rest of this account or this storyline, Abraham doesn't have that information. But he has that faith and confidence. Keep up the reading there. And I will go and come again to you. Verse 6, And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it upon Isaac his son and took the fire in his hand and the knife and they went both of them together. And Isaac spake unto Abraham his father and said, My father. And he said, Here am I, my son. He said, Behold the fire, the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, now here's his faith again, God will provide for himself a lamb for a burnt offering. So they went both of them together. Verse 9, and it came to pass which, in the place which God had told them, and Abraham built an altar there and laid the wood in order, bound Isaac his son and laid it upon the altar and upon the wood. And Abraham stretched forth his hand and took a knife to slay his son. And the angel of the Lord cried unto, unto, called from heaven, and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here am I. And he said, Lay not thine hand upon the lad. Do thou neither anything unto him. And now I know that thou fearest, you can put in that blank right there, sort of respect, reverence God, seeing that thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, to him a ram in a thicket by, caught by his horns, and Abraham went up and took the ram and offered upon the burnt offering in the stead in place of his son. And Abraham called the name of the place Jehovah-Jireh. As it is said to this day, the mount of the Lord shall be seen. And the angel of the Lord, verse 15, called unto Abraham out of heaven a second time and said, By myself I have sworn and saith the Lord, because thou hast, what's that next phrase? Done this thing, and hast not withheld thy son. So in God's eyes, sacrifice was made. Thine only son, that in blessing I will bless thee, in multiplying I will multiply thee, in thy seed shall all the stars of heaven, and the sand upon which the, is on, upon the seashore, and all the seed shall possess in the gate of thine enemies, enemies, and in thy seed shall, here it is, all the nations of the earth be blessed because thou hast obeyed my voice. So if you want to break this text down, and this is more for your, for your use, perhaps for your study at some point at a later time. We won't discuss these really much at all, but I will make a statement or two about each. If you want to divide this text out, this is handy for my memory. Look at verses 1 and 2. And jot down there out beside that, this is unbelievable a test. This is an unbelievable test. What is he asking of him? He's asking Abraham to take your only begotten son and kill him. Now any of us that have children and or grandchildren or even just have loved a child in the past, or spent time around a child, it's easy to see that is something that would seem absolutely, for most of us, myself included, impossible. Particularly when you go back and review the history of the challenges and the time frame that has even passed in Abraham even having this son Isaac. 
And recalling and remembering, this plays into a lot of the texts, as a matter of fact, remembering in your mind that Abraham is at least a hundred years old when this takes place. Really more so. According to what we know for sure, his wife Sarah, Sarah, is at least 90 years old when this takes place. Now I'm saying at least because we know one thing that is absolutely sure, Isaac has been born. The thing we do not know for certain is how long he's been born. Some suggest that at this time that Isaac is maybe around eight or nine years old. Some others suggest, which I tend to more agree with, it is likely and even possible that uh, Isaac is probably about 18 or 19 years old. If you do simple math right there, just assuming the latter, if you say, well, we've got 18-year-old Isaac going up on a mountain with 118-year-old Abraham, you see the challenges involved in that. But you imagine... That Abraham and his wife Sarah, probably the better part of, if I had to just guess, 80 plus years have begged and pleaded and waited upon a son like Isaac, the one which God had promised he would give for the purpose and intent of making him a great nation. You assume that they have now had that child after all that time and all that wait. The child has been given. He perhaps could be as old as, if not more so, 18 or 19. And now Abraham has to have a conversation, which he will, with that boy and explain what's happening. Unbelievable test. That's verse 1 and 2. Number 2. Not only is it an unbelievable test, but in the next case, verse 3, to me at least, involves an unconditional obedience. Now the key in that is in verse 3, which tells us very plainly, and Abraham, what's the next phrase? Rose up early in the morning. Have you ever had anything in your life that you dreaded doing? that you knew was necessary and would have to be done, and you rose up early in the morning just to get on that because that's the fire within you? It's possible, but not always likely. If you're more like I am, you lay there in the bed and you stare at the ceiling and you glance at the clock and you look at the calendar and you wonder and you wish and you hope that it's not today, and if it is today, that it's not now, and if it's not now, then it's not never. He gets up early in the morning. Next part of this, number three, not only is it in this case an unbelievable test, is there unwavering, in that case, obedience, there's also an, un, an, an unconditional trust that's available here. Look in verse four through eight through this. You might recall in that that what happened here is Abraham, when God told him go into, originally I've always thought of this, God said go to Mount Moriah. That's not exactly how this reads. God first says, you go wherever I tell you to go. Then he says, go toward Moriah. And then he says, once you get in that direction, you go to the mountain I'll choose then. So Abraham in one sense is in the dark and throughout most of this, if not nearly all of it. But in that, he has within him what I would call that unwavering trust where he does not, as I would, turn and take a step and say, well, you know what, if what's going to happen today is happening on Mount Moriah, we'll go over here to Mount Chehaw. That'd be a long walk. He goes straight on. He takes the instruction given by God, albeit not clear. 
but he knows it's sure. Just for outline. Next part of this. Not only included in that section, verses 4 through 8, but now 9 through 12. Because what we learn about the text here is that this is an unlimited or unquestionable submission that he has. Even when we discover, beginning in verse 9, that he's had the conversation with his son, preceding verse, beginning in verse 9, he starts to go through with this. Now, Abraham made a statement earlier. My son, God will provide unto us a lamb for a burnt offering. And just assuming that, and it seems apparent maybe that it had happened, that Isaac turned and said, okay, I'll take that. Now, I don't think my son would take that. But maybe someday. But assuming he said, okay, I'll, I'll take that. I'll, we'll, we'll just wait and we'll see what God does. How does that turn out when he binds Isaac up and lays him on the altar and begins to stack the wood on and around him? How does that work? 118-year-old man, perhaps? 18, 19-year-old boy? What's taking place? What's taking place in this case is the fact that there's unquestionable submission. Next section. We're just covering the passage itself. Not only that, but there's an unlimited substitution. Verse 13 and 14, we do know that as he drove back or reared back with a knife, that the angel called down, stopped him, called upon him not to slay that son, and there standing in the thicket was that ram. I would have to guess, this is my disclaimer, it's only my guess, that ram was not there one moment too soon and no one, one, certainly not a moment too late. Sounds a little bit like Galatians 4 in the fullness of time. God provided for him a lamb at the moment to which it was needed and it was all that was needed. There wasn't a replacement. There wasn't a time when Abraham said, well, there's a ram, but that's not a lamb. There wasn't a time when Abraham said, well, there's maybe a, a ram, which you might call a lamb, but I've got my son and surely if God asked for the son, then God must want the great. Mm-mm. The substitution was here. And then lastly, again, just for outline purposes of the passage, we have not only from that scripture forward, verses 15 through 18, remind us and also remind him of the unforgettable, unforgettable con commendation. i got to say that carefully. The unforgettable commendation. And that is that in based upon what he had done in God's eyes, in that in God's eyes he had sacrificed him, God said, now will all your nation be blessed. Now, verse 19, will all the earth be blessed because of you. That's just to cover the passage. What matters? To me, what matters here is the principle. What matters here is not just what we see, albeit it is of great importance. It matters which what we do with this. Now, I've heard, I've preached many a sermon from this context. I love going to contexts that are familiar. I always hope that familiarity in this doesn't breed contempt. That is, that I don't look at this and say, oh, well, that's Genesis 22. I already know it. I'm done. That's it. He doesn't have to tell me anything. I hope that I don't study that way. 
what should he and therefore what should I learn from the text? There's three things I want to develop with you this morning. All of these will come as a question. All of these are worded, for me at least, as a personal question to me, but if you're taking notes, I hope you'll write them as a personal question for you. And the first one is this. Can I trust God with my possessions? Can I trust God with my possessions? Do you see what God was asking for? In the temptation, in the trial of Abraham, in the trying of his faith that would ultimately work patience, James said, in the trying of his faith that he must envision and view as that of precious as silver and gold, as Peter would say, in the idea of what the Hebrew writer says, in that he went forth and he did just what God had asked, can he trust God with this possession? What I realize in this, and I realize many times in my life, is I've gone through some trials. And I'm sure there's somebody here this morning who could raise their hand and says, I've gone through a trial. If you can't say that, you might raise your hands. Maybe you'd raise both then and say, I'm going through a trial. And if you don't raise either hand, I'm going to tell you something. I don't, I don't want to be ugly. You're going to go through a trial. That's the three categories of people that exist. I've gone through, I'm in, or I'm going. If you're living, you've gone through, you're in, or you're going. And in every one of those categories, your faith will be tested. Somebody says, not my faith. Not as faithful a child of God as I am. I mean, do you not see the, the worn cloth on this pew? That's what I've done. I'm the one who's done that. You see that stain? That's where I've been sitting all these years. Not me. I've said that. And I've looked in the mirror and said, oh me. What has God done? You see, what I'm learning in this is that God may not ever ask for the things that you don't want or the things that are harming you or hurting you or the things that are evil about you and your life. He may not come to you and try you to try to get that. You think about your sins. I could say, well, I'm guilty of lying and cheating and stealing and pride. And, and you could name off any, any number of sins. And yes, God wants those things to stop. If there's any sin in my life, God wants through the blood of Christ to be able to remove that. And for me to never toy again with that again, that's what he wants. That's his desire. But he will not try me to get me to stop what I'm doing that is wrong. That's not always the way he does so. If you've got a, an alcoholic, I'm just using that for example. If you've got an alcoholic who's been to rehab 43 times, that's an exaggeration because I don't want anybody to be in that position. But if you've got an alcoholic who's been to rehab 43 times, he's lost his wife and his kids and his family and his parents. He has absolutely nothing in this life, nowhere to live, no clothes on his back. He has nothing in life. And God says, I tell you what, give up your alcohol. alcohol. He might say, here you go. 
If that's what it takes for me to have a relationship with you, here you go. Here's the bottle. Here are the rest. Any sin could be inserted. But if God came to you today and he did not take the bad, but ask you for the blessings, how would I respond? I don't foresee God ever doing such with us. This is an Old Testament biblical account. But if he did, if God's option to us was you give me your son so you can have me. You sacrifice your physical son so you can have me. Would I do it? Because if it is my son, if it is my bank account, if it is my home, if it is my health, if it is mine, you could name anything that we possess. One principle is always true. God gave that possession. That gift, that possession was from God. The question is, can I trust God to take it back? If what matters in my salvation is if I would give up the greatest blessing or blessings that God has already given me, if I'm not willing to give it back, I can't trust God. That's the position Abraham was in. Lord, I hope we're not in that place. But in one sense we are. I don't know what was happening in Abraham's life. I really don't. I wonder if maybe Abraham had gotten that son. You know, he'd already had Ishmael, but that wasn't God's plan. The true son that was going to carry on these nations was that of Isaac. Here he is. He's a growing, young, snapping boy. He's experienced life with him so far. He knows how wonderful gift this is. Just maybe Abraham has started to focus on that son greater than God. Just maybe Abraham is so thrilled and overjoyed with this one possession, which is a good one, which in most of our lives would be the greatest, that of a child. Maybe he's putting too much on him, and God says, I want to see who you love the most. Can I trust God with my possessions? Let me give you a verse. I want you to go to it. So hold a place here in Genesis 22. Go to Malachi. So you've got to go all the way back on over. Keep turning the right. Go to Malachi chapter 2 and verse 2. Malachi chapter 2 and verse 2. Malachi 2 and verse 2. Now, this is a little out of context, I'll admit that, but this is, yea, a statement of God nonetheless. Malachi 2 and verse 2. If you will not hear, now Abraham's having to listen right now. If you will not hear and not lay it to thine heart to give glory unto my name, saith the Lord of hosts, I will send a curse upon you, and I will, here's the phrase I want to notice, I will curse your blessings. <laughs> And yea, I have cursed them already, because thou didst not lay it to heart. 
Now, what is that saying? In context, that's another discussion of the other day. A bit out of context, it says this. It may be a time when if we take our blessings to be blessings and we see them higher than God, God will curse those blessings. You say, how has that happened in my life? I don't know if it's happening in your life, but I think it's happening in America. We are the most blessed nation, I would assume, on the face of the earth. God has given us everything, or at least access to everything physical in this life, as well as opportunity spiritual. And in too many cases, we as a nation are spitting in the face of God with our vanity and our immorality and our slaying of babies and, and the, the vulgarities that are out on our streams or out on our televisions or in any other source, the way that we walk around, and many, not all of us, certainly, hopefully none of us, but the way that we puff our chest at God and say, God, thanks for what you give me. I'm really enjoying it. But yet give him glory for nothing. He'll curse that. He can make a curse out of our greatest blessings. And not to say anything was cursed about the boy Isaac, but only to represent and picture the fact that if he was taking Isaac above God, that was within itself becoming his curse. Question, can I trust God with my possessions? I don't know if you've ever done this type of thing in your life, but, you know, kind of sat down and made one of those lists where you write down about all your blessings. You know, we, we sing the song, even count your blessings, count them one by one, uh, name them, see what God has done. Have you ever done that and then step back and see those blessings and say, look at all that? Take it one more level just based on what we're saying. Look at that and start marking one off that you think you could give up for God. It's hard to get down that list. God has to be first. Somebody says, well, I've given God a place in my life. He doesn't want a place. Somebody says, well, I give God priority in my life. I mean, especially on, on Sunday. He doesn't want priority. He wants preeminence. He will never take second place. And he will not use his throne as a duplex. He wants preeminence. Number two, we've got to speed up, right? Not only ask myself, do I trust God with my possessions? Number two, do I trust God with his purpose? Think about it. You go back over in the Hebrew letter and, and read that verse 17 through 19 again, and you see it developing right here. It was God's purpose, God's plan to do this. This wasn't Abraham's idea. Abraham didn't get up in the morning or any morning and say, guess what, Isaac? Let's go and sacrifice you to God and see if he likes it. Let's go up on the mountain near Moriah there and just find us a place and, and I'll lay you on an altar and we'll take your life and, and burn you on that altar and we'll just see if God wants that or not. This is God's plan. It's God's purpose. Can I trust God with his plan? One of the things I've honestly noted in my life, and although I'm ashamed to say it, I'm not afraid to say it. I've not always agreed with God's plan. 
There have been times, there have been several moments in my life at some point, many of them recently, where I saw what God's plan must have been in my life and I thought, uh-uh, God. You can't have that. You can't take from me what you're trying to take. You can't deal with me in this way. God, we need another plan. You had better find another way. That's not the way I had it figured out. But then, you just have to trust Him. You just have to say to Him and yourself, God, this is your plan. And then what do you do? You become what is difficult to become, and that is an active and willing participant in such. You have to obey him. You think about other characters, one that comes to mind, and of course we know the end of the story and the repentance that took place and such, but you think about Jonah. What was God's plan for Jonah in the beginning? Go into Nineveh. Save these people. Preach unto them. Save these people. What was his solution to that? Uh-uh. No. I'll go here. God, you've got me headed the wrong way. I'll go here. What if Abraham rose up early in the morning and said, I'll tell you what, Isaac, me and your mama, we got to get out of here. Because I don't like the plan God's got for us. It was enough coming up out of the earth of Chaldees and coming into this place. We're not going any farther with him. Trust the plan. Obedience. In his case, obedience was immediate. He did it quickly. In his, in his case, obedience was informed. He didn't do what he thought God wanted. He did just what God wanted. You know, maybe even because he made this statement, God will provide a lamb. What if he got up early in the morning and grabbed Isaac, but also stepped over here in the field and got a hold of a lamb by the, by the tail? Or the horn of a ram. And pulled him in. And as they're on the way up the mountain, uh, Isaac says, you know, what are we planning to sacrifice? No, wait a minute, Daddy, I don't have to ask because there it is. It was informed. It was impressive. The obedience of Abraham, we're reading about it. We're learning about it. We're using it as a biblical example of that. Can I trust God with His plan? Number three, the last one. Can I trust God with His promises? You see, the thing about this life, the thing that is true about our physical lives is that from God we have very little, if any, promises. You say, now wait a minute. You got Jesus closing the Sermon on the Mount. says, you know, uh, seek ye first the kingdom of God. All these things shall be added unto you. And you look at the context, what are those things? Well, they include food, clothing, shelter, health. It, all these, yes. But what is God's primary promise? It is for nothing more than our spiritual well-being 
and ultimate salvation. That's all God asks. That's all God offers. You say, well, I don't want to go through the part of life I'm going through right now. Do you want to land in the destination and the place that you want to be in the then and there? Do I want to make it? Do I want God to carry me through? Do I trust Him enough to carry me on this journey? It's not always easy. Matter of fact, again, I can only speak in my life that I've hit in places, parts, portions of my life at least where I have to look at what God wants me to do and say, God, I just don't know. I mean, I, I've been blessed on one hand to live 47 years, but on the other hand, I've waited 47 years and He still ain't put me where I want to be. I'm still not where He promised He would take me. What am I going to have to endure to get there, God? What Abraham knew. Abraham knew that God had already done the impossible. And a God who can do the impossible, bring a child to a dead womb, bring a child to an old man. I, I can only imagine then when Abraham came out of the maternity ward on his cane, he said, it's a boy, it's a boy. He saw that. And now we have him here in this account. And to close it out, and he sees over there to the side God's promises being fulfilled. Jehovah Jireh, God will provide. Literally in this place, the Lord shall be seen. How does that end? What is God's promise like? Can I trust Him with my possessions? Can I trust Him in this case with the plan or the purpose? Can I trust Him with His promises according to what the Lord said? In John chapter 8 and verse 56, Abraham was glad when he saw my day. You see, that's the promise. The promise in Genesis 22 is the same promise in Genesis 1. It's the same promise in Revelation 22. Jesus shall come, has come, and will be. Jesus fulfilled the I am of God. And he promises us the same. If you're here this morning, you're not a child of God's. I would be amiss if I were dishonest with you and told you that if you become a child of God, your life will be filled with roses and good-smelling puppies. It won't be. It won't be. You will go through days in your life that I've gone through and probably worse. I've seen people go through worse at least that are much harder than you might be willing to endure. But to trust God, that is to have faith in Him. To allow my faith to be tried, sometimes with fire, but all to be seen is the precious gold and silver that it is. It's what I must be doing. 
you're here this morning, you're not a child of God. The invitation is always open. It's always open anywhere and everywhere, but especially it's open now and here. Through faith, that's what Abraham had. Through repenting of your sins, turning your back on this life, through being willing to confess his name, see the Lamb of God in the horizon there, and be willing in turn to be uh, baptized into his blood, to have our sins washed away. What does that do for us? That allows us to have the purpose and the plan of God ready to be prepared for the promises. But there may be days, there may be decades that are involved in getting there. You're here this morning, you are a child of God's and you would be more in a category like I am where it's just a fact. <laughs> if I'm honest, I don't want to be tried. But I know unless I'm tried, I cannot receive the most wonderful blessing God has offered. We're here today, if we can assist you in any way through prayer, through offering you our assistance, much more than offering you the assistance of God. The invitation is open while we stand and while we sing.